Welcome to Successful Parenting, where we, Jackie Rue and Robin Choquette, share practical skills for families to build resilience and healthy connections. As practicing professionals and parents ourselves, we hope this podcast is a resource for parents to grow, reflect, and learn more about themselves and their children. Our approach is simple, tangible, and most importantly, we lead with compassion for the integrity of the families we serve. This podcast should not be taken as medical advice and is intended for informational purposes only. We love our work and we can't wait to watch families gain confidence and open themselves up to new ways of successful parenting. Hey, Jackie. Hello, Robin. How's it going today? It is good, good, good. Yeah, it's it's a good day. Like, good. I'm excited. You know, I am excited about our guest speaker today because he is someone I've been following his work for quite some time, and he's also very charming and funny, so that just makes it all the more exciting to have him on our episode today, and it is Justin Wolf. He is really well-known and respected in the addiction world. He has made quite an impact. He is the clinical director at Footprints in Elgin, as well as clinician at Neighbor Clinical Behavioral Services. And he really brings a lot of richness to his work because he has a story and he can relate. And I'm really excited to share that with listeners today. And and hopefully our families can relate because one thing I've learned, and I truly believe we're all impacted by addiction, either one of our close friends, our family members, we will know someone that has dealt with addiction. And, and most of us in full transparency, have dealt with addiction in some way in our own lives, whether it's through, as we've been talking about, alcohol or drugs or food or tech. And so I think this is a topic that so many are going to be able to get something out of as well as learn and be able to really help build more understanding connections within their own families. Welcome, Justin. Thank you, Robin. Thank you, Jackie. Appreciate Thank you. you. So, Justin, tell us a little bit about your story. What brought you into this field? And you're so passionate about helping others dealing with addiction. Can you take us on that journey? Sure. Appreciate you asking because this is something that kind of going into this was I'm in a position that I never thought I would be in. Like, if you were to ask me, like in high school, hey, Justin, what do you want to do with your life? I would tell you, oh, I'm going to be a professional baseball player. My whole identity was wrapped up around sports. Baseball was kind of like my life. And that was kind of like the vision of what I saw for myself. So for me, the idea, and I love the fact that Jackie, you mentioned like, hey, we've all been impacted by addiction. I mean, this is something that I never thought would be on my radar, let alone um, my own personal experience with growing up. And once I lost that sense of self, since I sustained a an arm injury that really kind of curtailed all of like what I had thought and what I envisioned and how I saw myself with sports, that all of a sudden, once I lost that ability, I didn't know who I was. And I think that's something that's so common when I talk with people is just this sense of self that's just been lost along the way that people have a hard time figuring out who are they. And I really found myself at the age of 18 <laughs> through 20 really struggling with the idea of who am I? And I'd gotten so far away from who I was and the person that I was kind of brought up to be in terms of values and identity that I felt lost. And like many other people, when you feel lost and you don't know where to turn, there's a great outlet. And there was this, 
was watching something last night and it kind of like resonated with me. And this person's sitting there drinking and this teenager looks at him and goes like, what are you doing? And it's like, the person just looks over and goes, you know what? This is what adults do when they're unhappy and don't feel good. And it just resonated so strongly with me because like I was trying to get out of my mind and away from myself through any capacity I could. And really that all culminated on October 10th, 2004, because in this process, I had somehow also convinced my parents that, you know what, it would be a really good idea. Send me down to Arizona, to Mesa Community College, (laughs) right next to Arizona State. Because not only did I have a sparkling 1.3 GPA my freshman year of college, (laughs) I also had gone and thrown for the coach down in Arizona. He's like, oh yeah, you can come play. And I went down there and I'm like, I had no intention of playing. I just wanted to get away. And that was kind of my whole mindset. It's like, I just need to escape. And this was my escape. And I took it and I jumped headfirst into that pool. And so on October 10th, 2004, I was involved in a single vehicle car accident at 3 a.m. And I mean, I have no recollection of what transpired, what happened. The story I'm told is that fortunately some bystander was driving down the street and called the police and let them know, hey, there's a car that hit a pole here in the middle of the road. And they came and they found my body in the back of the car. They had to remove my clothes. They had to put me on and bring, there's pretty much bring it back to life, take me to a trauma hospital. And I ended up sustaining a traumatic brain injury. I was in a coma for three days. I spent three weeks in that hospital. I remember I came home right before Halloween. Like that's one of the few things I remember because if anybody's ever seen the movie 50 First Dates, I was pretty much Drew Barrymore for a good two years. <laughs> wow. And so this idea of like, who I was and where I'm going and who I'm going to become. I had just been like, you know what? I'm working in the restaurant industry now as a uh, busboy. Like, I guess that's going to be my career. It's going to be my job. I lowered that bar for myself so far from what I had aspired to be and what these ideas of who I was going to become to, you know what? I'll just be making, making minimum wage. I'll have a single apartment. I want to push people away. And in this process, what ended up happening was my roommate down in Arizona was unfortunately passed away due to an event and another one of my good friends got in a single vehicular car car accident as well and suffered a traumatic brain injury very similar to mine another one of my buddies ended up going in and out of rehab and i'm just like oh my god what's going on with my world because all these people that i'm associating with are having these awful things and experiences happening to them all because of substances and everything that's tied to them And it just blew my mind because I'm like, these aren't bad people. These are people that have been hijacked by these drugs that are kind of just pushing them in a direction. And it didn't make sense to me. So then I did the thing that I never saw myself ever possibly doing because God knows I had to arrest my ego. (laughs) And I went into counseling and I saw a counselor that really, remember his name, Dr. Scott Johnson, really helped give me a new perspective And helped actually instill hope that the spot I was at, it wasn't going to be forever. And that there was other options available that I couldn't see at that time. And so I'm like, oh my God, if I could go and give that to somebody else, 
that actually can make this world work. Well, and I love that you share your story because I think it's so helpful for so many. And I love that you're willing to be so vulnerable and, and really kind of put it out there. You know, one thing, and I don't know if you've seen this too recently, and my kids have been out of college for a couple of years. I really saw the minute they stepped on the campus was this notion that college kids just binge drink and that's what they do. And recently there's been several stories coming out of the news, students dying on college campuses due to alcohol use and things like that. There was just in the news um, on one of the campuses, two students that have died. And, and these were kids that, you know, had really gone out and drinking a lot and roommate had, you know, brought them home and kind of moved them on their side and woke up in the morning and they were not alive. And so, yeah. and the reason I bring this up is because there is this notion, and I even saw this in high school around like prom yeah. and, and dances that, you know, kids will be kids, but when you see this and earlier they start in this notion that binge drinking is okay. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's the part where, especially the idea like with dance is like starting in high school with like parents condoning it and saying, you know what, it's going to be okay as long as you're doing it in our basement and nobody drives home and everybody's just going to leave their keys in the fishbowl and everybody's going to be safe because guess what? It's in our home environment. And I will tell you, horrific things have happened in those basements and that same and those same behaviors translate when people go to college because you mix individuals who have minimal experience drinking and let alone their age and their impulsivity and that front of the brain because i mean one of the big lures of drinking is guess what like that break that conscious that says you know what maybe that's not a good idea we shouldn't go jump off the roof and see what happens and see if we can actually pull that off that part of our brain that says stop don't do it is turned off. And so it's just acting out of pure impulse and desire. And you see horrific things like you just described transpiring because who's responsible in overseeing that people are actually safe and taken care of? Other adolescents and young adults who are heavily intoxicated as well, just going off of information that they've heard, oh, roll them onto their side. So that way, if they throw up in the middle of the night, you know, they're not going to die. And they're not going to watch over them for those countless hours in the evening because they're going to get back to the party. So you're seeing these horrific things transpire with minimal supervision and people engaging in behaviors that have been communicated by people older than them that, hey, this is almost like a rite of passage. This is what young adults do. These are the best four years of your life. Go hard, turn that switch off, and then get into the real world and start working. And Actually, we know that doesn't happen for a lot of people. Well, and I think we as the adults model the use too so often, you know, that kind of sets the stage for, you know, our children too. And I heard a lot of parents say, you know, I drank and I'm fine. And, you know, as a kid, I think we're learning more and more, but the media, we're so inundated with the mm -hmm. holidays are coming and there's alcohol and, you know, there's a party and there's a festivity and to be happy, there must be alcohol. And obviously the alcohol companies are kind of yeah. pushing, but it is something that you really kind of can't get away from. Right. No, most definitely. We know like one of the biggest triggers for a lot of people is their own family relationships. And it's incredibly stressful to be around your family. So you see people drinking prior to the event, during the event, sneaking away to drink. I mean, all these behaviors that are kind of going on just to kind of get away from really having to be fully present. Yeah. I think it's interesting because the pressure that you see adults give each other and other people regarding drinking, oh, just have a drink. It's the holidays. It's time to celebrate. 
And then I find interesting in what I'm hearing adolescents say to me, a number of years ago, I heard my parents argue with my older brother or sister about the use of marijuana and you can't use it. You know, that's a terrible, horrible thing. And now they're all having a gummy and now marijuana is okay. And so they are saying, you know, it's just all these mixed messages and then the social fun and then, oh, now it's a problem. Children really struggle in that space of trying to understand what does it all mean, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of mixed messages out there Mm -hmm. surrounding it. And I think that's part of the challenge is really trying to decipher and figure out, hey, what's accurate, what's true, and what's propaganda? There's a lot of organizations that are really invested in seeing marijuana, particularly, get very large. And it really has taken off. And so that's part of the push where it's like, are these facts and research-based truths that people are perpetuating? Or is this just really some fantastic marketers that are saying, guess what marijuana is great for? It cures everything. It's the wonder drug and the elixir that we've been searching for. And guess what? Now we can all finally have it. (laughs) And unfortunately, what we know and what we've seen is that it doesn't really back up everything that it supposedly addresses, treats, and quote-unquote cures. But uh, you're right. It is, a, it is a changing landscape, and it's a changing world because now marijuana and alcohol are almost used interchangeably where they used to be kind of pitted against one each other, one mm-hmm. another. Yeah. And so the casual drinker, yeah. you know, casual use of gummies or edibles or whatever. And I, I just think it's it's really hard to kind of understand adolescents are looking at the families and saying, well, wait a minute, we're really confused about it all. It's it's a hard place yeah. to be. And I think for everyone right now, trying to understand and to be able to provide adolescents good role model. Mm-hmm. Right. Justin, do you have any recommendations regarding conversations for our families that parents can have with their children around alcohol use, around substance use? Maybe they see a family member at a get-together that is intoxicated. Maybe there's a lot of use. I mean, how would you suggest parents talk to family about this? So I think that's one of the one of the biggest parts in all of this is actually like that willingness to sit down and have that conversation. Because what I've heard from a lot of families is just this is really uncomfortable. This really doesn't sit well with me to actually ask and talk about it. I'd rather just bury my head in the sand like an ostrich and pretend like this isn't occurring. And that just kind of feeds the very thing. And I think that's really the most important thing we can do is have these conversations where we sit down, we're open, we're honest, we are transparent and say, hey, you're going to see a lot of your friends that are doing this. And especially those that are Coming back from college, especially as we're talking about the holidays, and you look at what historically has been known as Black Wednesday, one of the biggest drinking days of the year, where everybody gets back together from college and goes out and goes hard because guess what? The next day's Thanksgiving. You can just sleep in. There is so much social pressure that is being applied to individuals along with the influence of social media and this idea of missing out, not being included, not being a part of, being different than. These are all factors that kind of play a role in shaping people's image, their desire to want to use or be involved with. And so I think that's where we have to talk about that social component in the relationship we have and really saying, hey, if these people and because like a lot of people will like have that one person in a group where 
it's always like, hey, like we can always point at somebody who's drinking the most or, you know, uses a little bit more heavily than the others. And you go out and like they're the last person that stays at the bar when everybody else goes home. <laughs> and it's like, what is it about that person that's making them want to stay while everybody else is done? And it's just kind of talking about and laying out the whole landscape when it comes to substance use and understanding that desire and what drives it. Because sometimes what ends up happening is people don't talk about the family dynamic component of it when you look at the hereditary predisposition for mm -hmm. alcohol yeah. use disorder. Because people people are incredible at covering it up or they're just high functioning, right? So that's right. It needs to be talked about. It needs to be addressed. And the idea of, hey, you know, I'll talk to them about it when they want to talk to me about it. That's just avoidance. And we need to bring that conversation to our young adolescents, our adult, young adults, and make sure that we are giving the facts and understanding what is occurring and why this is transpiring in their lives the way it is. Yeah, what you're saying reminds me, I had a young lady and unfortunately she had gone out, had a few drinks and ended up in an accident. Uh, no one was hurt through the process that she had to go through and all the uh, counseling and groups. She started picking up the function of the drink. And she said so often for her, she would come home and this is a young adult and she would say, it's been a long day, I'm going to have a glass of wine. And she says, I'm starting to really realize my relationship with wine, my relationship with other substances, and I'm no longer going to use those as a way to manage what's going on for me. If I'm stressed, I'm not going to do that. And she really started shifting and changing, really helped her to change her relationship. That's the thing, as we get older, and as people age, that behavior, it makes a little bit more sense. It could become a little bit less problematic that somebody at the age of you know, 12 or 13 goes, you know what? It was a rough day at school. I need to go smoke a bowl to kind of feel better. And if I'm looking and I'm learning at a younger age, which was what we're seeing happen with these dab pens, right? And the alcohol that's readily available in predominantly most people's fridge or wine cabinet. When you're using something externally to try and manage what's going on internally, that's a very strong connection that's made. Because now we're talking about this emotional connection, and that's very reinforcing when you don't have to do anything to alleviate or relieve this stress or this emotional pain you're experiencing other than just picking up something and using it. That's one of the more slippery slopes that we can kind of slide down very quickly because our mind is giving us the rationale that I'm doing this because it makes me feel better. I'm doing this because I want to get out of my head and I don't want to be in, in this moment right now because this is really painful. This is my exit. This is how I get away from this. And so I think that's the part where this is one of those things that as a parent, if I'm feeling like I have to turn to something like a drink or a pill or a dab pen, because we're seeing marijuana also increasing the amount of parents that are using it. I've been at family get togethers where all of a sudden this guy pulls out a dab pen. I'm like, what is Yep, that's exactly what I thought it was. And I was like, oh my gosh, okay. Like even at family gatherings with small children. And I think that's the key thing to be aware of is what is the behavior that we're modeling for those that are watching us? Because as much as we like to think, I mean, we hear it all the time, like kids, right? Where all of a sudden they repeat and they drop the F-bomb. You're like, where did you hear that? Oh, I heard it from you yesterday. Like, oh my God, I didn't know you were listening. Yeah, the Christmas story, right? Yes. <laughs> little kid is, Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, that's the part where people are, they're always watching and they're seeing how is mom or dad handling a bad day? And to be honest, like I remember watching like, 
my father's in a very stressful line of work. I mean, being a criminal defense attorney, <laughs> and I just would always remember, and it's it's imprinted in my head. I know what dad was doing when he got home. I know exactly what was transpiring and occurring. And I learned like, okay, so this is what you do to handle stress. Makes sense. I got it. And so, yeah, we need to model that for our children, for those around us. That there's alternative ways to handle our emotions and our stress in ways that actually build us back up as opposed to possibly tear us down. Well, and you're giving us so much information. I mean, I think it's so true when you start to think about this and the impact it has. I know we're talking a little bit more about alcohol use today, but there's so many different types of addictive behaviors. And, you know, like you mentioned, we've talked about today, the substances. And do you feel that we are predispositioned to have issues with alcohol use, you know, genetics? What do you think? About- I would say that there is a strong predisposition. I mean, all the research shows it, right? And I think one of the things is that you look up and down family trees and you'll find it. Like I find it up and down mine. There's people that you just don't know about. Like there was a story that I heard I'm like, oh, so-and-so, you know, died in this, died in the middle of the night because they, were, they died in the fire. I'm like, oh my God, that's horrific. And there's more details of that story that, that I find out later. I'm like, oh, okay. That makes sense. But I think that's the part knowing that, hey, family members, in up and down our tree, they've struggled with substances. And it's not a moral failing. It's not something that we lack. It's just, hey, our brain is hardwired this way. And I mean, for me, like this is something that was hardwired even before any substance use occurred because my mind was always hyperactive. And that's why I love sports because it gave me something to fixate on. And it gave me something to really just attach to and obsess over. And so my mind was always hypercritical. And when we talk about substances, I think it operates that same exact way with the mind where it's like, oh my God, I love this feeling. It's like the 4th of July going off in my head. Where have you been all my life? And I finally discovered you. You better believe I'm going to be coming back again. (laughs) And it just over time gets stronger and stronger till the point it just becomes automatic and our brain becomes programmed. And it happens like that. So I would say that there is a strong predisposition along with our culture and the way that the culture promotes it. Look around town. There's all these liquor stores that are popped open. There's all these pot shops that are popping open. It, It's a very supportive environment for those that want to engage in that behavior. That biopsychosocial part of it all. Exactly. Families are really reaching out. When do we start having those discussions? How do we start to have those discussions about vaping, about, you know, drug Mm -hmm. use, about alcohol? How can we start that? At what age? And then what's the warning signs? When would I be concerned? What would tell me I should be concerned? What would you say are some of the warning signs that families should be looking out for? And how do they start those conversations? Yeah, I think that's at the age to have the conversation. Because I remember like being part of D.A.R.E. And the officer coming in and it was just like this educational component, right? About drugs and drugs are bad. It was like Mr. Mackey from South Park. Mm-hmm. And I just remember being like, what is this person even talking about? Like, I, it's so foreign to me. I don't know about any of this. So that was really like the introduction to drugs. <laughs> and I think to answer your question, I think really when we're looking at when's the right time to have these conversations and really put the information and really educate and empower people to make choices, I'd rather get ahead of it than really kind of be reactive to it. Because sometimes I feel like then it's not well-received. It is more felt as like punitive and punishment. So I think around middle school, like sixth grade, seventh grade, well, technically six, you should be, should be happening at six because 
that's where I hear a lot of people began their use was at the age of 12 to 13. Most people, I mean, and we all know through the research, the earlier you begin using, the stronger the predisposition to really struggle with substance use throughout your life is. So if we can get in there, and I'd say, I think fifth grade is too early because it's not in the elementary schools, right? And there's, you could say you're trying to get ahead of it before they get to middle school. But I think that sixth grade, probably like first semester, if I had to kind of put a timeline on it, would be the ideal time to really empower people and give them that information to let them know what's really out there. Because certain communities are very sheltered. You don't really have knowledge of. And I guess that might be changing the way the internet works, right? (laughs) But I think that's when we need to make sure that people are knowing like, hey, everything you read on the internet, it's not a fact. (laughs) And this isn't true or else like people wouldn't be having these problems or these experiences with vaping that they're having in terms of like people being hospitalized and bad batches and you kind of break down what's actually in this stuff. And it's just like glycol, like what? These are things that were like outlawed, but now we're like inhaling it. So I think really just empowering people and just being honest about, I think it all really, honestly, it comes a lot back to like your family predisposition and really looking at people and your children and saying, Hey, you know what? Like they have anxiety. They have a much greater likelihood to struggle with substance. The same thing with depression, bipolar, because you're going to look at people trying to solve the problem of feeling. And the more information, the more we can empower them to be aware of that, the better. And I think when you're talking about, hey, what are those warning signs that might tell me, hey, my kid's kind of going down a path and something might be up and it might not just be hormones. I mean, we're looking at behavior changes drastically where it's like all of a sudden they used to be like this really sweet, endearing, really around the family a lot. And now they're isolating, they're holding up, they're always on their phone, they're not making eye contact. They got strange smells now when they're coming in the house. Or And I think that's one of the things like with vaping, particularly like there's a sweet aroma that's always in the air. And I don't think uh, a lot of adolescent boys are having like oil diffusers. <laughs> so I think it's really just naming it. Cause I mean, there's a lot of people who are just like, you know what? I want to let them kind of just, you know, work it out on their own. And I'd hear this from parents where there's like, hey, they're just not ready yet. And I think that's the part as a parent, you have the ability to say, you know what, let's kind of draw that line right now and have this conversation so that we're not responding to an emergency. Because if we don't have to respond to this in a crisis, there's a much greater likelihood this message might actually be received and we might actually get something productive out of this. Right. And so we know mm-hmm. just educating around because parents, you know, I just had a mom yesterday and what do I say? They're vaping. You know, this is what kids do. And I think the vaping came on so quickly that for many parents, they really didn't know how to handle that. And it is something that do hear that phrase, kids will be kids, but really learning and listening to what you're saying in the world. And I'm treating addictions and working with families, it really is about like, let's look at where we are and kind of what's going on and what are some warning signs that we're seeing. And and really there are warning signs, but sometimes it's just hard to know how to respond. And, you know, one thing that I recommend to families when we had this conversation this week is obviously don't say, just don't do it. <laughs> like <laughs> dare, you know, don't do it. Yeah. But, you know, it's your choice if you are going to use. We do, as your parents, the right to drug test you and we have the right to use breathalyzers if we're concerned. And there is not going to be the tolerance for this in our house. I think just sending a consistent message. So often our kids don't get consistent messages, right? And right. one question that just popped in my mind. And this has been a tough one for me to sometimes know how to answer. Families want to make sure kids have a safety plan when they're out at parties. And and many parents will say, 
if you need me, I will pick you up. No questions asked, no judgment. And some families will say to me, do we then give a consequence if they've been drinking, but they call us to take them home because we want them to call us? How do we handle that situation? Really appreciate you asking this because this is something that comes up a lot where it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, they crossed this line and they still did the right thing by calling us. And so you want to create that environment where people don't get punished for being honest. Because if people are getting punished for being honest, what we're actually going to reinforce is the very thing we don't want. Now we're going to get that lying, that deceit, that covering up, that masking. And I think that's the part where having that conversation when they're not under the influence of anything (laughs) and saying, hey, I appreciate you calling last night and making the right decision not to drive. Asking, like pulling the safety plan saying, you know what, like, there's drinking or smoking or drugs being passed around here. I don't want to be a part of this. You reached out and you let us come get you out of that situation. Let's talk about this afterwards, the following day, and kind of having that established on ahead of time so it doesn't come as a surprise. It doesn't feel like it's a knee-jerk reaction so that we can game plan it and also identify what the expectations are and how we can support one another in this process. Because it's key that we're viewed, especially for parents, to be viewed as an ally. Yeah. And had this one kid in program, like your question kind of resonates because he said in group one time, it was like, it was just like mind blowing for this young adolescent to kind of bring this up and share it in the way he did. He's like, I always felt like the, my parents were on my back. I feel like they're all over me, constantly pushing me and all over me. And he's like, and he just pauses, looks around the room. And he's like, and I just realized my parents actually have my back. They're looking out for me. They don't want me to be a statistic. And so I think that's where creating that space and showing up and saying, I'm not expecting you to be perfect. We're just really kind of pushing towards continuing to make the next right decision and working as a team and moving forward together. So often we do have to treat it as a family issue because it can Mm -hmm. be so systemic, right? And so it's so interesting. And for some of these, there's no clear cut, but it does, from what you've said today, really educate early, you know, start when they're young. We model our use and being able to have those difficult conversations when we see family members or we see others really using to excess. And when I think of addiction, I think of it on a continuum. You know, you might start somewhere small, but over time that problem can progress. And for many, you might have a problem with alcohol. And if you're listening today and you have a problem, you know, you don't have to be a full blown falling down, getting DUIs to have a problem with alcohol. It's really about how it impacts our lives, our relationships, how we manage stress, how we sit with distress, all those things. And I've had conversations where people say, well, you know, you're an alcoholic if you've lost your job or if Mm -hmm. you've got a DUI. And, And really, it really is. It's not true. It's more about how it really impacts you on a day-to-day. Right. And I think you bring up a great point where it's like a lot of people, when you kind of look at it, the reasons people keep using are a lot different than the reasons people began using. Yeah. Yeah. And you hear that story change where it's like, I want to do this versus like, I need to do this (laughs) and I can't imagine my life without it. Or I only feel normal when, and that's a, terrifying thing because it's like at what point did we cross that line where living life without this substance in your system didn't feel normal anymore didn't feel natural and I think that's part of the challenge too is really helping people really discover themselves and figure out and get to know who they are 
because I will tell you, it is terrifying to sit with oneself. I'm sure people know it <laughs> because I mean, for me, like I was like, let me just try to get out of my head mm-hmm. and away from me. And for adolescents, especially during a time where there's just so much confusion and so much identity and a sense of self and belonging is so critical that this becomes an easy rite of passage to kind of get in. And then it just, you know, takes you on a different turn that you didn't expect to take and you end up in a place you didn't expect to be. Yeah. What would you suggest to families if there's concerns about their own use or their child's use? What would be the next step? I love the fact that you kind of bring up like about concern about their own use, because that is a huge thing that you hear come up when we're talking about a child's use or an adolescent's use. And it's the adolescent might bring up, like Jackie mentioned a moment ago, where it's like, hey, like I'm I'm here because I'm smoking marijuana every day. My parents are drinking half a half a fifth of Jack at night. Isn't that a problem? And it's kind of like turning the mirror and kind of saying, you know, am I getting upset at them for the very thing that I myself am engaging in? And I think it's really doing that self-reflection and kind of looking at and examining the relationship that we have with these substances and the impact it's having on our functioning, our lives, our mood, our behavior, our relationships, and really kind of saying, okay, first step, where do I turn for help or knowledge or even some support at this time? And so I know a lot of people will turn to self-help books or the internet (laughs) and try and Google and research what resources are out there. And I think sometimes the first step that I've seen be really helpful for a loved one or like a parent who's concerned about their own use is going and talking to a professional about it and just getting some feedback and saying, hey, I know it can be terrifying because it's kind of actually acknowledging the very thing that we don't want to talk about and say is in the room. And so to actually say, hey, if I'm having a problem with this, what does that say about me that I can't control this? And that could be a really difficult place to kind of be. So really having a safe place where you can go and be open and honest about the relationship with that substance and what it looks like and the role it has, as well as for concern about the child's use. A lot of times what tends to be on the front lines are the school workers who will reach out and say, hey. I notice your kids changing peer groups and their grades are dropping a little bit, or maybe they're a little bit tardy to class now. And that's, these are all new behaviors for your child. We're wondering what's kind of going on at home, or we want to make you aware of this. It might be helpful to have them go and talk to somebody. So I think that could be part of that just first step in trying to find out and figure out exactly what's going on and what we can do to really get ahead of something before it becomes to the place where we don't have the ability to control those next steps in the direction of this. You are doing so much for this arena and our families, and I love collaborating with you. So thank you for that. We are going to start wrapping up and you know, Robin's got some special (laughs) questions for you. Three questions we ask all of our guests. You (laughs) may answer one, two, or all three. It's up to you. So number one, tell us one of your funny parenting stories This could be when you were a child and something your parents did. Number two, what TV family or movie would you want to be a part of and why? And three, what does successful parenting mean to you? Take it away, Justin. One, two, or all three. What do you want? Oh, wow. Great question. Let's go with just, uh, we'll go with number one. So my funny parenting story is, gosh, this is going to be, this is going to be embarrassing. So when I used to run like the adolescent program, for the dual diagnosis individuals, the kids, I used to hold like a tight line, right? The kids like, I would hate to be your child. You probably don't let me get away with anything. I am probably engaging in behaviors I told families not to do. Uh, 
where my children hold me emotionally captive and really kind of push me. So it's like every Friday night, it has turned into JoJo's Shake Bar (laughs) solely for the video games and a milkshake. They're like, oh no, we're going to eat dinner this time. We're going to eat dinner this time. Like, And every time, of course, I fall into the same trap that everybody wants to fall into. It's like, you know what? They're being honest with me. They're telling me the truth. In the back of my head, you're a fool. You're falling for it again. Here we go. Hold that line, Justin. And uh, every Friday, like clockwork. And oh, what would you know? Today is Friday. So (laughs) I should mentally prepare myself for this. This is coming. So I need to rehearse setting the line. But no, it's just cute. It's adorable. And my thought is like, hey, like they're only kids once. And to kind of be in a position where I could see them just be happy and enjoy the moment and harass me. It's it's lovely. (laughs) It's lovely. I mean, and that's why like, one of the things that I love is like, I get to coach all their sports teams. What was that movie with Braveheart? There it is, Braveheart, where they're kind of like all charging. My daughter led a pack of her small soccer friends to charge at me after a game, <laughs> screaming and hollering while all the other parents on the sidelines watched their children chase the coach for a good five minutes in a circle. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, I guess this is uh, how Lord of the Flies went down too. So yeah. <laughs> you lost control in that one, didn't you? <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yes. So that was, uh, that was hilarious. And that was their reward at the end of the season. After I coached them for softball, I was like, they were asking, Hey coach, cause it's all like 90% same girls coach. Can we chase you again? Can we chase mm-hmm. you again? I'm like, you know what? Let's go girls. I've been training all year for this. <laughs> And off we went. But yeah, I mean, it's just like this, like the pure joy and happiness and like innocence that comes with like childhood is just so awesome. It's like, oh, don't ever lose that, kids. Mm-hmm. Don't become jaded to the world. Right. Well, thank you so much. It's been great talking. I love this conversation. Yeah. No, I appreciate you all having me, giving me the space. So thank well, you. Well, we will all. definitely try to have you back. You know, and, and the reason I love doing this too, Justin, is there is so much, as we talked about earlier, shame around this topic. And I think people really feel a lot of shame in saying, mm-hmm. you know what? I just don't know how to get a handle on this. And they say, I don't have control. It implies that they're that bad off. And I think there's such a spectrum of it that the more we talk about it, the more it will create healthy relationships for our children. Mm, I agree. So thank you so much. And I look forward to continuing to follow your work and learn more about what you're doing. And I know we'll continue to collaborate together. Thank you, Robin and Jackie, again. It's been fantastic. Thank you, listeners. Thank you. Have a great day. Bye, Jackie. Bye. Thank you for joining us and make sure to subscribe and like us to catch our next episode where we will take you on a journey to find new ways of successful parenting.